Welcome to the Afghanistan Project Podcast. I'm Beth Bailey, and today I'm so excited to be joined by Will Selber, a Lieutenant Colonel in the U.S. Air Force and a volunteer with the non-governmental organization Operation Sacred Promise, which works to evacuate members of the Afghan Air Force and the Army Special Mission Wing from Afghanistan. Will, it's really exciting to have you here tonight. We're going to be talking about the phenomenon of moral injury, which has really come into um, prominence in media, especially in the last year in the aftermath of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. So thanks for joining tonight. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So can you start, you know, a lot of us are familiar with post-traumatic stress disorder and other kinds of um, effects that have uh, war has left on those who practice it. Um, but can you give us a brief description about moral injury? Because I think it's a lesser understood topic. Yeah, you know, it's been a, so I'm not an, uh, no bees, an expert on moral injury, but I've done enough research and as somebody who has suffered from it uh, for quite a while. Um, you know, so I would suggest that anybody who really wants to understand moral injury to read uh, you know, two books by Dr. Jonathan Shea, uh, Achilles in Vietnam and Odysseus in America. And he really did a lot of work with uh, Vietnam War veterans. Um, and when he did his research and interviews, he found that really, uh, you know, moral injury occurs when, uh, you know, for vet- veterans, when there is a betrayal, one, one critical aspect on something of critical importance by someone of higher authority. And those are the three elements that he says are common throughout moral injury. And what that can cause is, you know, deep, deep depression, a questioning of your overall uh, moral worth. Uh, and it's usually uh, coincided with, you know, can range for any type of thing from depression to insomnia to having some type of overlap with PTSD. You know, somebody is, I, I was diagnosed with combat PTSD in, in 2006 after my first deployment. And so there's a, there's a lot of differences. For me, it is more of the, the combat PTSD can be more of like a physical uh, symptoms, you know, uh, nightmares, jittery, uh, hyper-awareness, hyper-vigilance. Um, and really for me and for the friends that I know that have suffered from moral injury, it can be a deep questioning of your overall worth uh, and the overall narrative that you tell yourself uh, about what your service was. So, for example, for for most veterans, the, the number one principle that we hold by is that we don't leave anybody behind. No one left behind, and it's in almost all the services, creeds, and mottos. And so, for Afghan veterans, the ones that were very involved with Afghans, um, leaving them behind was a hits all the things that Jonathan Shea talks about, and has created a huge wave of moral injury for thousands of Afghan veterans and also uh, civilians as well who've been involved in the uh, NEO. Yeah, I can say as as someone who uh, I, I've been working on Afghanistan related things in some capacity or another since 2008. And mm-hmm. I always wondered what was it post evacuation, that feeling of just righteous anger and absolute oh, yeah. inability to focus on anything other than that. And, and how do we fix it? And, and I, I still don't know if that particularly is moral injury, but it certainly is um, a powerful motivator that I see in so many veterans that I speak with, and then in so many civilian volunteers who are just, um, they're, they are motivated by something that is otherworldly almost. Yeah. Um, I think that it's, you know, moral injury is, uh, you know, 
it's, it is something that is just very, very difficult to uh, deal with. And especially if you don't have a lot of people to talk to about it. Um, as you know, as, as Afghan, I spent three and a half years in Afghanistan on four different deployments at the village, the, the provincial and the national levels. I was most recently there from June of 2020 to June of 2021 uh, in the defense attache office. Um, and, you know, when you come back and all of this happens and the vast majority of the country isn't really kind of dialed in on it or what, what's going on, you feel very much alone. Like you're the only one that is going through this huge trauma. And while everybody else around you to your left and right, just gets to keep on living their life. Like nothing really happened. And I think that for many veterans and active duty service members as well, um, it's that injury of not being able to talk about it and not be able to discuss with people what happened because something happened and it's a betrayal for many of us of what we pledged our lives to. That's so huge. And it speaks to the civilian military divide, which sure. is huge in this mm -hmm. country. And how do you, you know, I've always advocated for um, civilians, you know, we say a lot of thank you for your service, but we sure. don't ask. You can't really thank someone if you don't understand what that service was. And right. so a few of us are curious enough or care enough to ask those hard questions. I think we've been trained not to at some level, mm -hmm. but um, it is a burden that should be shared and that, um, it, you know, that no individual should have to handle alone. And so talking, I think is, is very powerful. How can, so let's track back to mm -hmm. the main methods of like, you know, talking is one sure. let's, let's expand on that. Like yeah, sure. talking with therapists, how sure. do you, um, is it currently something that's even classified as, you know, PTSD is something that we recognize. Oh, you are right. experiencing PTSD and here is the course of action that we're going to take yeah. to kind of handle that is moral injury in that sphere. It doesn't have a diagnostic no, component now. It's not, now? It's not okay. something that you can get a, uh, a disability rating for the veterans affairs. Uh, you can get depression uh, added on there, but uh, it's not something that is uh, formally recognized, even though there is an expansive body of literature about it. Um, it's not the first time that, you know, this has kind of cropped up. We saw it, you know, in Vietnam, we saw it in parts of the Iraq war, but I think that it was really punctu uh, punctuated by the, the, by the Neo and the chaotic nature of it. And so talking about it, you know, it, it is the validation of what happened that so many people really, really crave. Um, it is the big T, the, the truth that, that people crave about what happens. And if you read a lot of what Jonathan Shea talks about, um, it is that for a lot of Vietnam veterans, it was that lack of validation. It was the lack of anybody taking ownership about it. And so for many of them, they blame themselves. And uh, when that vacuum is, 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 is empty, right? And we don't fill it with what happened and a, a validation of that we lost, that we abandoned people, then that, then that vacuum will be filled, right? By things that we don't want active duty service members or veterans or civilians to fill it with, you know, uh, alcohol, drugs, radicalization, all that type of stuff will fill in that void. And so 
for moral injuries, yes, there's treatment plans, and a lot of it is talking, uh, you know, talking about it through all these different uh, means. Therapy is absolutely one of them. Group therapy is another one, but it is something that, in my opinion, it is it can have a much bigger effect for a lot of people who uh, than combat PTSD. In my opinion, combat PTSD, we've done a lot of great work on it, and it's got a very big uh, audience today. I think is National PTSD Day, and so. You know, there's a lot of you know tried and true methods to go through, but people are not aware of what moral injury is. How do you think we can? So I guess, how do we increase that awareness other than just continuing to talk about it, write about it when, yeah. especially when there is so little talking about Yes. In this particular case, what has happened, you know, in the Neo in the two years since? Yeah, I think so. I think I think that needs to be it needs to come from senior DOD and military leaders um, as a, you know, junior uh, officer commander. I can do so much. I can I've had uh, very frank conversations um, with my formations about what happened in Afghanistan and actually saying that we lost, that we were defeated. Um, and, you know, that is a difficult thing for people to say um, and, and for people to hear. Um, it doesn't, none of that means that, you know, that people's service wasn't honorable, the vast majority of them were, but we need to take ownership that that actually happened. And I think it's as plain as day that it did. Um, and so that needs to be said out loud and it needs to be said uh, by senior DOD leaders. And then we also need to admit that we abandoned our Afghan allies on the battlefield. It wasn't intentional. Nobody meant to do it. Uh, there's a lot of work being done to try to rectify that, but it happened uh, and it's still going too slowly for a lot. And just those two things said by senior DOD leaders, um, I think would do a lot, of, a lot of good for a lot of people. And if you look at really I mean, I've been in for 20 years. The military has totally changed in those 20 years since I've been in, right? I was in when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was around. And now, you know, I just did a Pride 5K as a commander, right? So, I mean, that amount of change is remarkable. I just went to, a, I spoke at a University of Texas mental health and behavioral conference a, a week or so ago. And people were talking about LGBTQ issues. They were talking about sexual assault. They were talking about suicide and all that type of stuff. And nobody was talking about the war and that we lost it and that, that we had abandoned our allies. And if we're brave enough to talk about those issues, right, they were so hard for us to talk about, we should be able to talk about this issue too. Absolutely. What kind of anecdotal or even, you know, I've, I've seen the numbers from the veterans affairs that, you know, up to 29% of veterans of our most recent conflicts, enduring freedom and Iraqi mm -hmm. freedom are going to experience PTSD at some point in their lifetimes, sure. um, which is higher than what they've recorded for Vietnam vets and yep. veterans of other conflicts, which granted, you know, this is a today statistic. And so mm -hmm. maybe that is similar, but is there any kind of statistic that you're aware of or any anecdotal evidence that you're aware of that shows kind of the impact or, or the, the scale of the impact of moral injury on. Yeah. So if you look, so it's, you have to kind of search for it uh, more in common, uh, a nonprofit did some surveys after the fall 
And so, you know, if you just look at that, you see like 76% of Afghan veterans uh, are angry about what happened. 69% feel betrayed. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think uh, it might have been IAVA did a survey and it was like 49% or 41% of Afghan veterans uh, have felt trauma since the Afghan Neo. Um, so those are all indicators. And I would also, you know, if you've read a book called The Inheritance, I think it's by Mara Carlin, and I might be butchering that name, but she really pinpoints on something that I've always seen inside the military. And she talks about contempt that you can feel inside the active duty military. She did a, about a hundred interviews of senior general officers inside the military about the last 20 years of war. And, you know, the quotes that you see is, you know, like, thank you for your service, really. Thank you for not making me think about the war for the last 20 years. So you have all these different things, right? You have anger, you have betrayal. Uh, I think it was like 71% felt humiliated. Uh, all those things, it is a, a bad mixture uh, that can, uh, can really lead to some really bad outcomes if we don't start actually talking about what everybody can see as plain as day. Yeah, I, I think that's it's it's such a simple solution, right? In theory, but um, I know it's really tough for some people. Um, I don't know if this person. I'm not going to mention this person by name, but I the first person who talked to me. Um, I had had to put Afghanistan down entirely uh, in 2013 mm -hmm. after I left the intel community because when I saw the news that the Taliban had raised their flag at the, yeah. their cutter office for political negotiations and I couldn't write a report about it or contact somebody and say, what in the hell are we doing? I got irrationally angry and I had to then, I realized you can't touch this anymore because you can't do anything about it anymore. And I went back to the past and started focusing on that because it was easier to parse through the past. And so in 2021 springtime, I had a young man I was talking to for an article um, who had become an amputee in the course of his service. And he told me that the Taliban had just started taking the district where he had lost his limbs. And I really wanted to get him on here to talk about it. And he told me, no, like he needed to process it. You know, he and by processing it, he just kind of needed to move forward from it. Sure. He couldn't do that anymore. But he was one of the first people to bring me back into, you know, the part that had been hard for me that I couldn't touch for so long. And then, you know, I got obviously that's all I do now pretty much yeah. is Afghanistan because um, I think it's this once you've started caring about something and you realize that very few people also do, you can't yes. stop. Um, right. It's a, a very difficult phenomenon. And so all of that background then to say, yes, we need to talk about it, but sometimes talking is really hard. And sometimes it doesn't feel like progress when you're talking about yeah, it. Sure. So what and do you do in that, in that yeah, it's, environment? It's, it's difficult. Um, it's difficult to talk about something like this. Um, and that's why, in my opinion, uh, it's imperative that leaders be the ones that step forward and do it. Um, you know, I talk in the, uh, a recent article I wrote on War on the Rocks um, about more injury with my mom, uh, Dr. Catherine Selber. Um, and we talk about, you know, we, we show that, you know, that the military, senior DOD leaders um, uh, have done this in the past, uh, you know, 
uh, General Goldfein, Chief Wright, uh, did this a series of conversations after the George Floyd murders um, and just really having a frank and open conversation. And that created a permission structure, right, all the way down. Uh, and so that now, I mean, we have frequent talks about race in America inside of the military. Uh, and even just a simple, just like a senior DOD leader coming out and saying that, he, that something went wrong can also have a great effect, like General Milley coming out and saying that he didn't do everything right after uh, the uh, Lafayette Square uh, uh, incident. I think those are two incidents, uh, two examples right there of uh, leadership. Um, and, you know, by having senior DOD leaders do it on this thing, um, it will help other commanders like myself um, to go out and be the ones to talk about it. I've been talking about it for, you know, I wrote my first article about it uh, for the bulwark uh, on the one year anniversary of the fall of Afghanistan called a terrible year. And I did a series of talks throughout my formation and the amount of feedback I've had from soldiers, sailors, Marines, uh, veterans has been remarkable. And so I think it's, it's hard, but we have to start doing it. How are they feeling? What did they say to you in that feedback? Anger, anger. So I just did a, uh, I did a briefing, um, uh, that conference that I've mentioned earlier. And, you know, I had somebody who wrote this uh, heartfelt email to me. Um, she said that she was uh, in the in the audience and she started crying and she had to leave because she had been involved in the evac uh, efforts. And she was like, I didn't think anybody was ever going to talk about this ever. I didn't think it was ever going to be talked about. I thought it was just something that happened and nobody was going to say that this was wrong. Um, you know, I think that there is a lot of fear that, you know, that we're going to be like, this person is to blame. Uh, I think we can, you know, have lessons learned and point out things that we didn't do right. And that's important as well. But I don't, I don't for me personally, and for a lot of people that I've talked to, like, I think everybody knows that it's not just one person that did that happened, right? And so that I don't, I don't think that's what most people are looking for to pin it on one person. And so if we actually talk about the collective we, the things that we did wrong, because society is supposed to go to war together, especially in, in the United States, and maybe that didn't happen. So we're all to blame for what happened in Afghanistan. That's my standard line. I'm accountable. For, I spent three and a half years there. I made mistakes. And I think that if we can hold ourselves accountable and we can start talking about what happened, we can not only start to heal some of our, our veterans' uh, moral injury, but we can actually make sure that in 20 years from now, we're not making the same mistakes in another uh, irregular war, like what happened after Vietnam, when we did not learn from our mistakes and put the war lessons aside and said that we were just gonna focus on the Soviet Union. Yeah, oh, I can't even, the, the number of Vietnam-esque programs that were tried in Afghanistan yep. that had not worked before. Yep. It's pretty astounding. And then sure. to, you know, the, I think that's, it's all so important. And, and like you said, it's no one person is to blame here. This is right. a whole thing. And it's, you know, I think it's very important to talk about this with the point of moving forward, moving sure. forward for the people who feel guilty, who feel yes. angry, who feel betrayed yes. and moving forward for a country that wants to do better. And all I see, and as time goes on, I think that all that anyone sees is all we want to do is bury it. 
burying it is only going to increase those feelings of guilt, anger, frustration, like you said, lead people to um, extremist groups or, or alcohol or drugs or whatever to deal with those very, very difficult feelings rather than just, I, at this point, honestly, and I've, I've said this on the podcast before too, I've never seen any anything bring people from different political parties together oh, yeah. like Afghanistan has. Oh, yeah. This, if if the administration and those key figures could come forward and say, let's talk about this and talk about the mistakes, I think that could do more to bring people together in this country than anything. I, there are, of course, people who would use that to say, you know, well, the one party is wrong, but those would be unfortunate people. Um, no, I, I agree. I think that it's, you know, we all are to blame for what happened in Afghanistan. And I, I don't think anybody really is looking for like this guy and this person and this year on this decision was the one that hinged on it and all went falling down. Um, yeah. Because that's unrealistic. It's a 20 year war and it spanned four different administrations, both parties and all that type of stuff. Multiple general officers were involved in it. Um, Secretary of Defenses and all that type of stuff. Um, but talking about that is going to make sure that, you know, that the, the void is filled with the big T truth. Um, you know, if you look at, there's a great book called, uh, what's it called? Bring the War Home. I'm a Kathleen Bellow, I think it's, I might be mispronouncing her last name. Um, but basically she looks at the a modern white power movement um, after the Vietnam War. And what she found was that they preyed on Vietnam veterans with a message of bring the war home, that you were betrayed by the elites, right? Uh, for what happened in Vietnam and that they don't care and that you didn't really lose, they stole it from you and they're to blame. And so come with us and you can join us. And for, you know, obviously there you can, there's some similarities between the modern white power movement, the Proud Boys and all that type of stuff. And I'm not an expert on that, but there's a lot of similarities there. And not the vast majority of veterans will never join a radical movement like that, but there's going to be enough that do. And uh, I think there's going to be a lot of people, it's more and more Afghan veterans, especially people who did their whole lives in Afghanistan. And that's my whole career is a global war on terrorism. And people like me are leaving the service, uh, retiring. Um, as we leave, these are the type of people that are going to be more susceptible to it. Because yeah. their whole narrative has gone up in smoke. You know, the whole narrative of, you know, where you are, you know, with the, the way that the Neo went down, um, for a lot of people, that narrative has been challenged. Yeah, I've seen a lot of interesting uh challenges on that too, that then start to, you know, without the truth, there's a vacuum and that you're right. It leaves a lot of room for conspiracy theories almost yes. to crop up of what happened here. And that's why it is. It's so important to, yeah. to figure out and to talk about it, to have a national conversation, to get everyone talking about it too, not just the people who fought in the country, but to have us all understand what happened, even if we didn't go there ourselves. Um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit, you know, you mentioned in a recent Twitter thread, having experienced moral injury in yeah. Iraq. And I yes. think you said that earlier too. Could you, what was that like? How did that 
come to pass because that's a different conflict with, you know, a, a very different uh, yeah. set of. Um, so, you know, I was in uh, Baghdad in 2006. Um, not a very good time to be in Baghdad. I was uh, on our on a police transition team training the Iraqi police, the secure, uh, Air Force Security Forces Squadron. Um, that moral injury, and I didn't know what it was at the time because a lot of my symptoms first were combat PTSD related. Mm -hmm. um, but the more and more I got past like the initial problems, the more I realized that there was some other stuff going on here. And for that, it was stuff like, you know, I was partnering with people that were murderers, rapists, torturers, um, uh, Iraqi security forces that were, you know, part of uh, Shia militias. Uh, Muqtad al-Sadr's uh, Mahdi army uh, that were going into uh, areas uh, and, you know, pulling uh, Sunnis out and murdering them and bringing them back to our uh, Iraqi police station. I write about this in a uh, in an article for the Bulwark called Moral Injuries. So uh, that is one, uh, one aspect of it. And it, it, it's also a betrayal by our authority, but over something of critical importance because you're there to partner and assist with uh, with somebody who you're told that they're going to be an ally. And for us at that point in time, a lot of the Iraqi police were just trying to kill us. And there was a lot of brutality that we saw and a lot of things that, you know, uh, we had to do that you know, went against what we considered right. You know, Jonathan mm -hmm. Shea talks about that, what you consider right. And for thus, you know, that happened again and again and again. And I talk about that in that article about... You know, for an ex uh, just a small anecdote, um, you know, we picked up uh, an interpreter uh, out of an Iraqi police station, but I was not able to take him into the IZ at the time. And I was uh, told by higher headquarters that I had to drop him off uh, in the middle of nowhere because it was getting late at night um, in a insurgent infested area. And I can only imagine that he probably did not survive that incident. So that type of event, right? It's a betrayal of what I consider right. And I knew it right at the time, but there was nothing I could do about it. And so that type of uh, moral injury um, is something that really affected a lot of people in Iraq. It's a different, right? It's different from the Neo, um, but it's still, it's still the things that you go in there, you're gonna be this type of person, you're gonna do these type of things, but then you're put in a test where you are having to do something that is against your code uh, and you have no alternative but to do so. Yeah. Oh, I I never thought about, because Afghanistan, there were definitely things like that too. I talked to one Afghanistan veteran. Um, he had been Army National Guard and he mm -hmm. agreed to meet with me because I was at the time writing a book about Sangin and I had never set foot in Afghanistan despite mm -hmm. having applied to multiple jobs in Afghanistan mm -hmm. to set foot in Afghanistan. But he um, he and his twin had served at Camp Phoenix together and they, his job was to uh, help get convoys of Afghan trucks loaded up and so that they could take stuff through, I, I think, Pakistan to go to another base. But he, um, the, the truck drivers would often have little boys with them. Yep. And they use those boys as yep. bachabazi, yep. um, which for listeners who are not familiar with that concept, that's dancing boys. So mm -hmm. they're used for sexual pleasure. Mm -hmm. And he would watch the truck drivers drive in and swap boys. Yep. And I could tell from the way he was describing it to me as he sat next to me 
um, that that still hurt him very badly. And I don't think that anybody had used that term moral injury. And unfortunately, about a year after our interview, I got a call from the friend, the family friend who set up that interview and his brother had committed suicide. And within, within three months he had followed suit Mm. and there was so much and the VA, he would go to the VA and say, I need to see someone now I'm struggling. Um, it wasn't just, you know, the men and the boys in the trucks. It was all the things it was having a three-year-old, not knowing if, if a three-year-old was going to pick up a weapon and come after him. Um, all of this uncertainty that was never, you know, named and he had to deal with it on a constant basis. There was a lot of, a lot of things going on for him and, and it's heartbreaking because that was a man who also, when I met with him, um, someone had failed to put the flag to half mast at his workplace and he wasn't having it. He sent out a memo to the whole company and he's like, that needs to be done. And nobody did anything about it. He went out there and he just made it happen because that mattered to him. He was somebody who, was going to do amazing things for this country. Me, uh, so I cannot and, hear you uh, right now. He didn't get the help that he needed. And he did things that were contrary to what he thought was right. And uh, just you always wonder, could we have done more to prepare him beforehand? Could we have done more to make sure that things like Bachabazi were not happening on yeah. an American base? Um, yep. You know, just... <sighs> What yeah, can we do that, to protect at the time and to help afterwards? Because these are not cultural norms. No, no, no. Um, I, I had the same type of stuff. Uh, you know, I spent a year um, in Gorak, uh, Kandahar, next to Sankin, uh, doing village stability operations with a team from 7th Group. Um, and yeah, that was a very common thing. Uh, and I think for a lot of, for a lot of veterans... Uh, for a lot of active duty service members who saw that type of stuff, you know, it's the moral compromises that you make with yourself, right? That you're going to deal with that type of stuff, that it's okay because it's for something that's greater than you. Um, And then when Afghanistan came tumbling down, then you're like, why did I do that? Why did I suffer through that? All the different things that I did, uh, you know, for me personally, you know, I, I, you know, I missed the death of my father. I, I missed my, my wife's pregnancy. I was barely able to make it. And I went back home um, and all the different things that I saw, all the bombs, all the killings, all the things. And then to watch it all come tumbling down. It was a, I mean, I, the Neo, the first month of the Neo was hard. Um, but it was just so much, it was just so much action, you know, that you were able to just kind of like push your way through it. But then the months that happened afterwards and seeing it all fall apart and, you know, just being around everybody who was going through the trauma with you, if you were a part of the evac effort, um, it was, I mean, it was the worst year of my life, the first year. I mean, it was just brutal and I was in command and like, I was just, I was struggling and I, you know, I was very lucky that, um, the Air Force group that I'm a part of has something called an Airman Resiliency Team. And we have, you know, a psychologist, a chaplain there. And the psychologist that I was able to go to um, had dealt with moral injury. And so he was, he was really good. But I tell you what, I mean, it was devastating. I thought I had, I thought I'd been, I thought I'd seen everything war had, had had to offer. But when that came tumbling down, 
everything that I had done, I reexamined it and was like, what did I do this for? And I think that is what moral injury can be. It can just change your entire narrative of what you were doing. Like the story that you tell yourself, you know, what's right. And uh, when that happens, um, my mother is a professor uh, at Texas State University. And she deals with a, a lot of veteran student there. And she says that for a lot of them, after Afghanistan, betrayal became their narrative. Betrayal became their narrative. And you could see their grades start to drop. Boom, 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 boom. Um, because they didn't have anybody to talk to. And all they saw was that nothing really went wrong. And we should all be thankful for what happened in the Neo and people did an incredible job. I mean, it's just Herculean effort. I mean, it's the best, the best of the military, right? And then the evacuation stuff that's happened was just an, a remarkable effort that continues on today. But like that doesn't hide the fact that, that, that all the rest happened too. You know, that that's still this over here. Like just because this is amazing doesn't mean that this didn't also happen. And we have to talk about it because if not, you, you want to love veterans, you want to love the active duty service members, you want to love them and you support them. This is the real support, like sitting there and listening to somebody cry because all the stuff that they saw. And I tell you, there is a, a mountain of contempt, and I see it often, that people feel like they serve for a country that, I mean, they'll buy you a beer, but they're not going to listen to to the story about the dead girl that you saw on the side of the road. You yeah. Know? Yep. Well, and they can't often talk about that. Um, right. So I wanted when uh, the there was no chaos from my perch comment mm -hmm. came out. Was it Kirby who said that? Um, I wrote about it and I got a lot of people who wanted to tell me about it, but none of them could give me their names mm -hmm. because they're still in the military. Mm -hmm. And I understand that. But also, I hope that they're talking about it inside their command structure because they had a lot to say and they were feeling a lot of things. And we had then, um, Michael and I actually did a small round table of people who were there who could come on and talk about it. And the things that we heard, uh, I mean, I've seen a lot in my life. I've, uh, I've covered, I I've done a lot of Holocaust research that has, I've seen pictures of things I never hope to see in reality. And I've heard stories and, and listened to them and listening to them talk, these veterans at HKIA, I was almost crying on multiple yeah. occasions because it was hard. It was hard to hear it. And then at the very end, um, uh, one of the young men talked about how he almost killed himself when he came home. And one of the people in his unit did kill himself mm -hmm. and multiple people struggled with that. And it just reminded me of the importance of listening, yeah. listening and having a place to go. And for them, they, uh, most of the people who joined us that day, um, had joined OAR foundation, mm -hmm. operation allies refuge, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was a place where they could all talk and, and go over the things that they had seen that nobody else wanted to hear about. Uh, and I think that that's a great thing, but it needs to be bigger and we need to reach more people with it because it's not just the people who were at HKIA. It's the people oh, yeah. who watched the provinces that they fought in fall oh, or, man. you know, yeah, who, I mean, yeah. Brutal. Had, I, I tell, mm -hmm. I tell people that I have seen, look, I'm not like, I didn't kill bin Laden or all that type of stuff. I'm not some like, you know, door kicker, um, all that type of stuff, but I've seen enough of war. 
that I know what I know. I've seen enough of combat. I've seen all the horrors that, that are associated with it. Um, and that year was the worst. It was way worse. I mean, it was way worse. It's not even close. It, it nearly destroyed me. I mean, it nearly destroyed me. I just, I, I mean, I would come home. I mean, I'm a commander. I, I have pretty long, it's a pretty big job. Um, I would come home. I would put six hours in, you know, I had a bunch of, you know, uh, interpreters that I got out um, previously who were SIVs, American citizens. And I was just like working, working the phones, trying to get people out, you know, after the fall and after we left, it was like the wild west, you know, you were getting people in out any way you could, right? And as people were chartering planes, sneaking people out as before the bureaucracy came in, put a, put a red tape around everything. Um, but I mean, I would sleep with a phone on my chest up as loud as I could. And I'd wake up in the middle of the night, get it and start working. And, you know, I did that for a long time until I just collapsed. And the, the trauma from that alone, from that year alone, I'm still just trying to figure it out. I'm still just trying to figure it out. It has been the toughest thing I've ever gone through in my life because I tell people often like the military, you know, nobody ever trains you how to lose a war, right? Nobody ever trains you how to lose a war, but nobody promises you they're going to win a war either. However, one of the things that we tell ourselves constantly is that we're not going to leave anybody behind. And they, these principles are sacred. So when they're, we don't uphold them, you can't expect people not to be completely crushed. And if we don't talk about that and if we don't, if our senior leaders don't create that permission structure, then there's going to be more and more problems. Um, and it's going to manifest in things. I mean, you, there's, you know, at, at Fort Bragg or Fort Liberty, they've had a high, high rate of drug problems, suicide, all this type of stuff. And those are, that is the base that was most associated with a lot of Afghanistan and the NEO. And, you know, there's a huge Rolling Stone articles about it. And you can see that the, the spike increased after the fall. And it's just, it's, I see it all the time. And it's like the lights are blinking red. And I, I'm just trying to tell people like, this is coming. And if we don't start doing something about it, it's going to metastasize. Yeah. Well, I've seen too many. Um, I follow a lot of veteran accounts on social media mm -hmm. and I've seen too many posts lately about suicides. Yeah. Just, and it breaks your heart because you can tell that people are heartbroken and they're angry too, they're because angry. you know, they're those people leave angry. behind families yes. that needed them sure. and um, you know the the young man that i wrote about had a beautiful little girl and a beautiful mm -hmm. wife and they needed him and we yeah. need everyone i mean that's the thing is the veteran community and the service member community those are those are the most selfless people in this country yes we need them yes so badly we need yes. their experiences we need to hear about it and there need to be more places where their voices are are heard. But and we need to create a, 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 a structured spaces for people to discuss what happened so that they can forgive themselves. It's such or a hard them. thing. It's a very difficult thing. But you know, if if you don't validate somebody's trauma, if you pretend like it doesn't exist, that's that hole will be filled by things that are gonna make things worse.
Yeah. Well, and I think like you say, uh, the U.S. government has a role in that too. Every time that I send a message to the State Department asking for information about how many SIVs are left, how many priority one or priority two referrals to the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program have been accepted sure. uh, and how many have been input because that's a number that they don't want to give out either. Um, they always just come back and say, well, we got this many people out in the evacuation. I'm like, that's great. What about all the ones you left? What about all of those people? And many of them have an American behind them who is not only affected in, a, in an emotional way, Mm-hmm. but many of them are paying money. I mean, how sure. many of these veteran evacuation oh groups, people have liquidated their retirement accounts, yes. liquidated their children's yes. um, education accounts, yep. lost their, I mean, I've been through this too, divorce in the yep. aftermath of the withdrawal because yes. that's not the only reason for me, but like, yeah. you know, these are big things yeah. that people are going through because they are so fixated on how do we fix this? Like what is the toll of this withdrawal is far more than just like, you know, blood on our hands for lack of a no, better, I think that, you know, it's the same thing that I always try to say. Yes. Great things happened then. It was an amazing mm-hmm. effort and everybody should be proud of what they did. They, we mm-hmm. all should be proud, but like, you know, people fell off of a, off of a plane trying to evacuate, trying to get out. And, you know, God bless the people that made it out and I'm happy for all of them. But a lot of a lot of people who weren't in Kabul were outside of it, were the ones that we really put in in a bad place. Right. Because they were our allies out in really hostile areas. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of tribal elders um, that I was able to work with. Everybody has a superpower in uh, in the military. You know, pe- some people are great fighters. Some people are bureaucratic knife fighters. Some people can see a map. I was really good with Afghans, and I could I could talk to Afghan elders and kind of convince them to join us. And I mean, I mean, I can only imagine where some of them are. Right? Didn't make it for sure. And so we have all these people who put their whole life on the line for the last twenty years, um, and now it just kind of recedes to, to black and it's just very difficult and yes her- heroic stuff but we still left people behind and we need to talk about it and admit it and say to people and tell people like our senior leaders to tell them like yes but these are the things that are going on now i i talk to most people and they have no idea that that, that, that these efforts continue today they have no idea no idea um, and so like, I'm out there telling them, yes, it's bad. There's still people are still getting, trying to get people relocated out of Afghanistan and this work is still going on, but most people don't know. And so no. like having that conversation is vitally important because you give them a little bit of hope and you tell them, yeah, we messed this up. And these are the things we're going to do to fix it. So the next time it doesn't happen again. And for a lot of active duty service members and veterans, at least they can hang their hat on that, right? They can hang that narrative hat on like, okay, I did this, this didn't go right. But look, they are doing their, these things are gonna be reformed. This is, you know, the things that they're gonna fix. So it was worth it because I'm doing something for the next, for my brothers and sisters in arms down the road. So it doesn't happen to them. Yeah, and I think there are so many important 
uh, efforts that can um, help people kind of reclaim what Afghanistan meant to them. Yes. Um, and and I think that that's that's the important thing right now: reclaiming the narrative, making a new one. Uh, and you know, for people who want to do that, there are great ways to make a difference, or or to just talk through it, talk through it, and and come up with that new story. Um, are there any groups in particular that you think are doing a really good job at this right now? Yeah, I think that, so, you know, there's the whole Afghan evac coalition and all the different NGOs that are involved in it. I'm, I'm you know, involved in one offer operation sacred promise where, uh, you know, a loose coalition of different people, it's kind of meta uh, changed since the last two years. I mean, we're not as big as we used to be. Um, life, eventually had to move on and that's you know that's that's difficult for people to be like i have to let some of this go i have mm -hmm. to tell people that reach out to me that like i can't help you i'm sorry um but yes there's groups that are still i mean god bless like still working to get afghans out that are advocating to pass the afghan adjustment act that are pushing the state department to do more with P p1s and p2s uh, that are trying to make sure that some of the people that have gotten out that are still in Doha or wherever, that they're able to get through this process. You know, I had a, a, an American SIV, American citizen, whose mother languished in Doha for 18 months. She was a female, uh, head, head of a female uh, school in Logar and helped the PRT in Logar for 10 years. But there was a number on her phone that was suspicious. I mean, and so she, 18 months, and we finally, she finally came back. Yeah. And so, yes, there's, there's people that are doing stuff. There's a lot of groups. And I think for people to get involved, I would, for me personally, my opinion is that, you know, call your congressman, call your senator, tell them to pass the Afghan Adjustment Act. I think that would help a lot of people um, to point and say, look, we're giving a pathway to uh, the Afghans that are here, a pathway to uh, permanent residence. Yeah, because so many of them now are coming up on two years. Yep. And I know that there's been, uh, I think, did Biden make an executive order that people can petition to have their... I think so. ...their two years? It's all so confusing. And yeah. in fact, I just had a colleague from my former workplace say, are you writing about this? Because uh, it's not automatic and people right. are going to get screwed. And, you know, there's always... There's always more to report than there is interest in reporting sure. or people being reported on. But there's just, um, and that's another problem is, you know, all of this deserves it, to be brought to light. But I'm pretty sure if I ask the State Department, just, just for my benefit, I'd like to know this. I don't think they're going to come back and say, yeah, let me give you the numbers. They want to know that that's going to be, that that's a request from a media organization, not some random freelancer who just really is interested in, in having this information for the record. There's just so much that needs to be brought to light. And I think it that's the big thing here is we need to shine a light on all of this. It's a multifaceted problem, and there's multiple different angles to it. The tragedy, and uh, and then, but there's a lot of great stories of hope. And you know, if people really want to see, it is the best part of veterans and best part of civilians and the best part of service that you can see is what's been going on over the last two years. There's a lot of 
just incredible, incredible people that I've met over the last two years. Um, just some superstars that have like just um, what they have done uh, to get people out. Uh, it's just, it is mind boggling to me. I mean, like you said, you know, some of them have drained their bank accounts just to try to get families out, um, you know, for, you know, to uphold that promise that we made. I mean, I made to people that, you know, I wasn't going to forgive or forget about them. I mean, that's what the government trained me to do. They trained me. I was an Afghan hand. They trained me to go and, you know, make friends with the Afghans so they would trust us so that we could fight shoulder to shoulder. And I was really good at it. And so, and so were a lot of other people and, you know, it's hard to turn that off. And for a lot of them, they continue to fight to try to get as many of them out as you can. But, you know, I know you're, you know, you've talked to many people and, you know, for a lot of them, it's, you know, how many of them have had conversations where they've had to tell people, I'm sorry, you can't bring your mom with you. I'm sorry, you can't bring your son with you because he's over 21. I'm sorry, you're going to have to leave them behind. Yep. I mean, those are the conversations that, that active duty and veterans and civilians are have, have had and are having, continue to have. Um, and they're the ones that, that carry that burden for the country and for the very people who fought in these wars over the last 20 years. They are the ones that are continue to carry the burden. And that's the, the tragedy of the all-volunteer military, right, is that it was created after Vietnam to lessen the burden uh, on the population but it's overburdened a lot of people because not only do they fight the wars, but they're the only ones that grieve it. Yeah. Dealing with the aftermath of it. And, and that's not even, I mean, imagine the toll for, you know, Afghan SIVs who are here. I mean, you've, you said, sure. you know, multiple, oh, I, yeah. there's one in particular, Pasoon Khan. We had him on our show. Mm-hmm. I've been talking to Pasoon since shortly after the withdrawal and, um, he went back into Afghanistan. This man, uh, witnessed the, uh, when, um, the important thing here is Pasoon saw some shit in yeah. combat and True. he never stopped working. He worked and worked and worked until he survived an IED blast. Mm-hmm. And even after being in a coma, not able to see, having to relearn how to walk again, he went back to serve with the army until his SIV came through and he came here and then uh, he wanted to get his dad and his mom and his siblings out. And the state department wasn't moving fast enough. And his dad served in the NDS, the intelligence directorate. Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. And he was absolutely a high value target. So Pasoon flew to Kabul Mm. and uh, made the department of state take his family out, but the department of state would only evacuate his parents. So his young brother is now being raised by his older siblings in Afghanistan. And this is a man who to help his family pay for, cause his dad now can't work. Right. And his uncle couldn't work. He was working an insane. He did not take a single day off. He was working security shifts for 16 Mm -hmm. hours at a time and then driving for Uber in every spare moment he had to be able to afford the multiple apartments that his family required to move around in so that they didn't get rolled up by the Taliban. I mean, it was just the things that people have had to go through because we did this. Somebody needs to calculate them. It's just, it's unbelievable to me. And, and for somebody like Pasoon, 
it, this is something that um, was brought up in the a- after we finished recording, but where can he, he can't go to the VA for sure. services. Right. No, he worked alongside our forces for years and years and years, but he doesn't rate anything like that. Yeah. And so he's dealing with all of this on his own and he, you know, the concept of even PTSD or anything that he might be experiencing. I'm not sure if he sees it as that maybe he does, you know, who knows, but there's so much on that man's shoulders yeah, and, have, and there's have, no one coming to help him. No, I have a, uh, I have a, uh, an interpreter um, who, you know, we got, he was my interpreter the last year there and we got half of his family out. And so now um, the other half is still there. And so he is not only helping half of his family make this huge adjustment to, to life in America, which is enormous, big change, mm-hmm. but he's also sending a lot of his money back to, to Kabul and trying to figure out ways to get them out because, you know, nobody wants to be the, the family of an American SIV combat interpreter in Afghanistan. No. And the sad thing is every, I've never met an Afghan who moved to another country and was well-received there. Um, this podcast wouldn't exist if I had not gone to a, the house of a neighbor mm-hmm. who said to me, well, I don't think any Afghans should be here. Wow. And I said, oh, really? Even the ones who served with us and were right? No. And I said, what about all the Ukrainians who came over here after the, well, they're fine. They're white. And I, I should have reared back and, and done something horrible, but I said nothing. And I just called Michael the next day and I said, we're going to do the podcast because we'd been waffling. Oh, you should do a podcast. No, you should do a podcast. And I said, no, we're doing this because we need, people need to be able to hear the stories of Afghans and the stories of people like you, you've worked with Afghans, you care for them deeply. You would not care for Afghans deeply if they were not beautifully amazing people. Every Afghan I talk to on the internet before they say anything, it's how are you? How, how are things going for you? I mean, the Taliban could be at their door and they would be doing that. Yeah. I tell you lovely, lovely people. Yeah. Amazing people. Um, when I was doing the Neo and, uh, I was calling people to tell them I wasn't going to be, we were calling people, some of our contacts and we weren't going to be able to get them out. Um, I would say 75% of them just said, thank you for trying. And that was the worst part, right? Yeah. The ones that yelled were, or I, I took that a lot better. I understood <laughs> that. Right. And I was like, totally get it valid, but it was the ones that were like so kind to me. And they were just like, thank you. Will. thank you for everything you've done for me. Uh, try, don't forget about me. We're going to, you know, thank you for, for, for the last years and what, the, what America has done for Afghanistan. And you're just like completely blown away by it. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. You know, I feel like it's funny. This episode might be more than any other. I feel like you've had to flay yourself open kind of, and, and get to really the hard parts. Like this is not easy. It's like we talked no. about earlier, talking about this stuff is not easy. It not dredges up really horrible feelings. And at the same time, knowing that somebody else is listening and I know that there are going to be people who are going to listen to this and go, yep, I felt that. Yep. Like it's all of these things are important to say. And I'm so glad that you joined me. I know Michael wanted to be here. Michael's having technical difficulties. That's why Michael's not here in case anybody wants to know. There's not 
he's probably listening right now and cursing <laughs> me. Um, but you know, this is a really heavy conversation, but it, the heavy conversations are very important. important. So thank you for coming to do that with us. I do want to close. So we always close with a letter from an Afghan. And this is the longest letter that we have ever received. And I'm hoping that it doesn't make me cry. Okay. Um, so I'm going to read the whole thing. And uh, <laughs> this is from Asadullah, who is, this is the name we've given this young man um, who is experiencing serious problems from hemophilia and his father, Namatala, has applied for an SIV and is hoping to be accepted. Um, we actually received this story from an evacuation volunteer. So we are grateful to her and to Asadala for sharing this with us. <clears throat> My name is Asadala. I was born in 2002 in Western Afghanistan. When I was six months old, a piece of glass hit me and caused superficial bleeding. My mother tried to stop the bleeding with a cloth, but she did not succeed. My parents tried to take me to the International Security Assistance Force base, but because it was a military area, they could not enter. As they returned, they encountered an ISAF officer who saw me and asked my father to take me inside with him. Several doctors examined me and told my father I was suffering from a hemophilia and needed to inject factor eight. Unfortunately, they didn't have any. I was still bleeding and I was in the hospital for 21 days until my father's friend who lived in Iran found factor eight and sent it to my father. When they injected it, the bleeding stopped. My illness brought my parents into a new phase with different challenges. They have many problems and now I can understand how they felt and how much they went through. My mother says when my teeth started to come in, my gums started to bleed. Imagine that for many days, blood was flowing from my mouth. My parents knocked on every door to find blood and give me an injection. I looked at my parents' family. The majority of them gave me blood as a gift so I could survive. During these years, my parents sold most of the household items they had in order to get money to buy Factor 8. They were by my bed in the hospital day and night and didn't sleep as they prayed for my health. When I was six, my teeth started to fall out and the same bleeding started again. At that time, my father had managed to find a job with American forces in Afghanistan as a security guard. He was happy to have a good salary, but unfortunately, the Afghan government didn't provide any help to hemophiliac children. After a few years, with the help of foreign institutions that were active in the field of children's health, a department for hemophiliac children was created in the capital. <clears throat> a number of different factors were sent to Afghanistan every year. As each day passed, my parents had to be more careful with me because of my limitations. They didn't allow me to go out of the house and play with my friends. Uh, we're gonna, my mother told me that when she was pregnant with me, my father promised to take me to the best schools, regardless of whether I was a boy or a girl, so that I could study and become an educated person and serve the Afghan people. My mother said my father was unable to continue his edu education because he'd grown up poor and he had to do hard work to help support his family, which is why he was still living in poverty while his school friends who continued their educations had high paying jobs. My father didn't want me to be like him and not study, so they encouraged me to go to school, but they were still worried about my health. In the fourth grade, while I was playing with my friends at school, my foot slipped and I fell to the ground. My knee was injured and I bled into my muscle. I was hospitalized again, but due to the lack of sufficient facilities, the doctor told my father that he should take me to Pakistan for more tests. My treatment began in a hospital in Islamabad. 
But as a poor family without enough money for treatment, we had to go back to Afghanistan. Now poverty has caused my right knee to become defective, which makes it difficult to walk. In 2020, when I was on my way home from school, I collided with a motorcycle. My left hand was hit and I suffered subcutaneous bleeding again. The doctor put my hand in a cast from the fingers to the elbow. My father told him about my illness, but the doctor angrily told him that he knew better. My hand was in a cast for two months. With every day that passed, my fingers became less mobile until I could hardly move them at all. When the cast was taken off, I couldn't move my wrist. I tried, but it didn't work. I screamed and asked for help, but my hand had no feeling and was paralyzed. Until that moment, I thought that fathers don't cry. Then my father started crying when he saw that my hand no longer had any feeling. My father did the most difficult things when he was working with American soldiers. Taliban and ISIS threatened to kill him several times, but he needed money to buy factory. In response to them, he said, my son's life depends on me. <clears throat> life was no longer the same as before. When I went to school or outside the house, children mocked and insulted me. They wouldn't sit next to me in class. Some of the parents complained to the principal that my disease was contagious and I should be expelled from school. I had good grades and I liked studying. My notebook was full of letters from teachers saying encouraging words to me. My father heard some of the complaints and got angry. He took me to another school, but I had no more of my old enthusiasm. I missed my old friends, even though some of them have behaved badly towards me. Now I suffer from mental health problems and depression. <clears throat> I, I feel like I wasn't part of society and sometimes wondered if I exist at all. My new school was in a desert. I wasn't interested in studying like before. I wanted to play football, but I couldn't. In 2021, I was standing behind one of the gates when one of the children shot the ball and it hit me directly. The ball was very heavy. Everyone gathered around me. I opened my eyes and saw my parents above me, my mother crying, my father's eyes blurry. I couldn't even hear their voices correctly. The doctors suggested that I be taken to Sheikh Zahid Hospital in Kabul because I didn't have any factor eight and I was bleeding from my brain. I was hospitalized there and with the support of the government, I was injected with factor eight several times. <clears throat> then Afghanistan fell to the Taliban and the government fell apart. With the arrival of the Taliban, our problems doubled. On one hand, there was my illness and the lack of factor eight. On the other hand, my father had to hide. He had worked for American forces for a long time. Those who threatened him, the Taliban, were present in the whole city. According to Sharia law, for all who worked with American soldiers, it was considered, considered permissible to, or halal to shed their blood. Now, officially, my father could not work because of the fear of being exposed. He owed money to his friend and there was no money to cover our expenses. The burden of mental pressure and stress made life hell for all of us. Somehow, I now had bleeding from my bladder too, which led me to be hospitalized for four months. During this time, my mother was by my side. <clears throat> she asked people who were blood relatives to give me blood. After a while, one of our acquaintances brought factor eight from Iran and the bleeding from my bladder stopped. We had no chance in Afghanistan anymore, regardless of my illness. With the departure of the American soldiers and the Taliban gaining power, Afghanistan was no longer safe for allies of the American government. The Taliban had a fatwa to kill them. That's why they all decided to leave Afghanistan in different ways. My father sent his case to the National Visa Center of the American government and at the same time sent a request for help to one of the organizations that support Afghan refugees in America. Some time had passed and we heard nothing and were disappointed until my father received an email from June asking how she could help. 
and uh, Asadwa goes on to say that June is his dear grandmother and that he very much appreciates how God sent her to save us. Um, and he's very thankful to her. And I know that Asadwa is hopeful that his father's SIV will come through. So thank you so much to June and Asadwa for that story. Um, Will, thanks again. I think, you know, this, all of this kind of comes together. It's, these are real people facing serious situations and, um, the people back home are still in need of truth and deep, difficult conversations. So thanks for coming and doing that with us or with thanks me for today. Me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, as always, we want to thank all our listeners for taking the time to support the people of Afghanistan and uh, Tasha Kaur, and we hope to see you again soon. <laughs>